It's away from what else you know. Even though you could know it, you just don't know it because you have to play it out this way. I think it's one of those things that can't be discussed. You know, if you have to ask, you can't understand. <laughs> but, but at the very least, you can say that uh, they're, they're, they're really, they really are human. That's what Master writes when he writes so much about Jesus. He repeatedly says, that he really, it wouldn't be any, it wouldn't mean anything if, if he hadn't really accepted the test. You could put it like this, let's say, um, oh, I was reading about the Himalayan expeditions up to Everest. You know, you put those uh, people in that situation to have to climb the mountain and even the, the guides and the ones who know how to do it really well still have to undergo the arduous situation. It's still extremely cold, they're oxygen deprived, uh, all their body, the physical body has these problems, they still have to experience it. Now those who have a lot of confidence and a lot of strength and a lot of experience with it kind of know what it's going to feel like as they go through the whole thing, but nonetheless they have to go all the way through the whole thing. So Jesus being crucified as an example, he, he might know what it feels like to suffer and die because you all are so wide apart, I'm going to move up a step. Is that okay? Because I can't really see you otherwise. Um, he might know what it feels like to suffer and die, but that doesn't mean he isn't suffering and dying. It doesn't have the same... It doesn't frighten him. Let's use that as an example. Um, because we take this pilgrimage trip to India, we've done it now about nine times or eight times or something. Um, when I first went, went, it was all so much stranger and situations were so much more... Um, I wasn't really anxious because of the circumstances, but it was just all so much more peculiar for me. And now I go and I can't, I look out the window, it looks so natural to me, I can't remember how really unnatural it seemed at one point. And I see other people who are on the trip with us who are so overwhelmed by the whole situation. I can remember that, but I don't experience it anymore. Okay, so I think that's sort of how the masters come into this world. They can remember all of it because they did live through it. It's recognizable to them. But they're just not experiencing it anymore because it all feels real different to them. But yesterday, Sunday, I was in Boulder Creek. Um, we were helping to open their uh, new center there, which is lovely, by the way. And uh, I have no idea why, but I was sitting there meditating and all of a sudden the scenes from this movie came through my mind. And I, I th it was a movie, of, I think t it was Tom Hanks was the main actor and he dies of cancer. It was a real, you know, heart-wrenching movie, which I think, say to myself, why does one do that on purpose? But it was very beautifully done, I remember. And I'm sitting in the middle of the service, meditating. All of a sudden, for some reason, one particular scene in that movie was so vivid in my mind. You know, sometimes actors really communicate the human condition. And the condition was he was dying at home, and he'd been upstairs in his bedroom, but he, had, he was so weak. Pam, I'm really telling your story. He was so weak, he couldn't get up the stairs anymore. So they had to move him into the living room. And then the woman, who'd been so brave through the whole thing, realized in that moment that he, would, he was never going to be in their bedroom ever again. I mean, it was such a poignant thing. And I'm sitting here in this meditation, about to burst into tears about a movie, right? These are not real people. I mean, sometimes I realize I'm reading too many novels when the characters in the novels come into my prayers, you know, oh, please help Natalie to find her son. <laughs> I think, oh, this is a little weird. <laughs> but uh, where was I going with that? Oh, but it's just a movie, 
And here I am, and this is just a memory of a movie, but it's nearly moved me to tears because it's, it's an archetypal, archetypal representation of all the suffering and sadness that humanity has to go through. And in a very real sense, I think that's what happens to a master. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little girl talking about a movie, but you know, but a master comes in and he knows it's all a movie. He knows that nobody is really suffering and dying. He's perfectly conscious of what's happening, but nonetheless, it's so just vivid and so extraordinarily artfully done, you know, that the sheer um, artistry of it, if nothing else, just moves into tears. And so I think that, that that's, I mean, those are all just, again, tries trying to explain it, but it does make a vivid picture. So that when Yogananda is reunited with Sri Yukteswar, I mean, he's really reunited with Sri Yukteswar. It's just so thrilling. And it is thrilling because he was never exactly Sri Yukteswar before, and he was never exactly Yogananda before. Master used to speak so lovingly to Rajasi like that, you know, we'll never, ever, ever be Rajasi and Yogananda again. Not that we'll never be together again, but we'll never, ever, ever be Rajasi and Yogananda again. It's a unique moment in time. And so there's that, Yogananda uses images all the time about the divine artist and the, the divine director and all these images that have to do with creative art. And just in the same way that you see a beautiful piece of creative art, and you know it's just a Swami was, in a book he was writing lately, he was talking about the value of a Van Gogh painting, The Starry Night by Van Gogh. He said if nobody wanted it, it would have exactly as much value as any other damaged piece of canvas would have, is how he put it, you know? Because <laughs> it's really just sort of an unusable piece of canvas. Except something else has happened to that canvas that has made it exquisite. And so... Um, Master always uses these images, artistic images. I think trying to give us a sense of appreciation about how on, on, things can be appreciated on many levels and the sheer artistry of something can just be appreciated. Even if you don't like it or even if it's ugly. The first time Swami Kriyananda, Swami Kriyananda didn't even know who Michael Jackson was at a time when Michael Jackson was the most popular man in the world virtually. He just wasn't in the loop. And somehow when... Uh, I think when some of the teenagers found out that he did never heard of him, they somebody provided Swami with some recording from Michael Jackson because they just really felt that this this can't this cannot be allowed to continue. <laughs> and Swami was honest enough to say that he had no attraction whatsoever to what the man was doing, but for what he was trying to do, he did it perfectly. You know, and so you could just admire the artistry of it. I saw him once in some little brief television thing and because I too, somehow, I don't know what it was. I don't even recall, but just a picture in my mind of him suddenly dancing. And uh, I, I had the same feeling. I was awestruck by how just extraordinarily good he is at what he decided to do. And so in the same way, a master can sort of look at this world and just be very impressed and very participate in it and genuinely appreciate it because it's so well done. What an extraordinary show. It is. If this were a stage play, we would just be standing in the aisles and cheering. You know, what incredible realism. What convincing characters. What fantastic answers, actors. What an amazing, unbelievable plot. Who could have ever dreamed up such a thing? You know? And, and that's the spirit in which they experience it, I think. So it's both real and unreal. It's, of course, more, more unreal than it is to us. But... Uh, it's, it's real, it's more real than, than we think it is. I don't know how else to say it. 
It's kind of like an actor might glance out over the wings and notice. He can see from the stage, you can see the backstage. From the audience, you can only see the stage. So he can kind of see both sides of it. But nonetheless, in the moments that he's here, it's, he can't be relating to the backstage. He has to relate to here. But he can go backstage, <laughs> where we're sort of just stuck here on the stage until the final curtain. <laughs> You may ask that question again and again, Sarah. Everyone does. <laughs> you can't help it. I mean, you, you see, why is he so, what's Yogananda so excited about? You know, meeting Sri Yukteswar. But, and there is a certain amount of put on. But uh, nonetheless, it's also real. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Marilyn. Yes. The reader may have surmised by now. Yes. <laughs> No, his master. Well, actually, he does speak of it. And I'm not sure whether it's in the autobiography that he speaks of it or whether it's stories that Swami has told. But specifically, let's take the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, After he finished writing his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, he said, now I understand why my master never allowed me to study any commentary on the Gita. He said, because he wanted me to just tune into Vyasa who wrote the Bhagavad Gita and get directly from him what his inspiration was and transmit that. And the extent to which Sri Yukteswar did take him through teaching the Bhagavad Gita was through that method of looking at a verse and meditating on it. And and, and Yogananda describes how Sri Yukteswar only took him through some of the Gita because at a certain point he said, now you understand it. If you open any scripture from this point, you'll understand it. Because what he trained him to do was to be into intuitionally capable of accessing the level of consciousness from which the scripture was written. So yeah, intellectual people stand here and look up and try to guess, and then they do all these things. Saints reach cosmic consciousness and look down and say, oh, well, that, if you say it like that, that's what it means. You must be looking at this if that's what you're saying. And so, so I'm like that. He did the Bible the same way, by contacting Christ, and acting, asking Christ what he meant. And then he wrote down what Christ actually meant. And Swami tells this story in, uh, about the Rubaiyat, which Swami, of course, edited Yogananda's version of it. And uh, Swami was giving a lecture, I think, in Australia or somewhere. The place is irrelevant. It was out of the U.S., I believe. And uh, he, was, he was reading a certain quatrain. And uh, quatrain, is that what they call them? Why do they call them that? What does that word mean? Pardon me? Oh, four lines. Yeah. Okay. No, I bet that's what it means. Isn't it funny? You have words in your mind that you just... I was, as a child, I learned my vocabulary from books, so sometimes I made really, really amusing mistakes, so sometimes I get insecure like that. Okay. Um, that he was explaining a certain quatrain, and somebody in the audience just said, you know, this is just too obscure from what's written here in English to the interpretation just seems there's no bridge. And Swami answered that he had felt that way at first also, but the more he meditated and meditated, he saw the meaning in there. Then there was a Persian person, a woman in the room, and she had been reading it from um, the Wine of the Mystics also, which had, or else she had the Persian version of the Omar Khayyam book. The Wine of the Mystics also has the Persian. She said, you're right. She said, Sir Edwin, aren't no, whoever wrote it, it wasn't Sir Edwin Arnold, was it? Yeah, anyway, whoever, whoever translated it, Sir Edwin Arnold, okay, he said, the English version is not true to the Persian. 
Fitzgerald. Yeah, I didn't think it was her husband. Uh, Edward Fitzgerald. The English version is not true to the Persian. She said, this is what the Persian says. And when she said the Persian, um, the, the meaning was much more clear than the English. And Swamiji was pointing out then, I mean, as if it needed illustrating, which it didn't. But, you know, Yogananda was not, he wasn't doing it intellectually. He saw the words, then he accessed the author through those words and then expanded from what he intuited. I mean, words are symbols and everything in the universe holds within it, you know, everything else. So he's there reading these ver this verse and because it was written by a great sage, a master in fact, you know, his vibrations are in there, just like we said about this book. You know, you read this book and you're reading more than words somehow. You're just reading some consciousness when you read this book, if you are in the, uh, uh, if you're quiet enough in your mind to feel it. And I say that because sometimes I read it and I feel that and sometimes I don't. But sometimes I read this and it's just not, it's not a book. Something else is happening, it's a scripture. And so when Yogananda read that particular verse, he just knew what it meant. He didn't get it off the words. So I'm sure that's how he did the other scriptures too. So he had, but on the other side of it though, remember, and he talks about it in here, you know, uh, it didn't take much of anything to inspire an all-night spir uh, spiritual discourse. So where Yogananda learned was from the mouth of his guru. And he talks about, you know, they walked on the Ganges, and I'm sure Sri Cheshwar was just expounding all the time, continuously, and explaining, and they were interacting, and they were talking, and, and he was learning from watching Sri Yukteswar, and, you know, just on and on, because wisdom out of the mouth of a living saint is, uh, why would you read a book <laughs> if you have a living saint to offer it to you? And then Sri Yukteswar also, it's in the next chapter, but as soon as Yogananda's mind would, would, he would lose his concentration, Sri Yukteswar would stop talking to him. You know, your, your mind is wandering. No, it's not, sir. Yes, it is. You were thinking of, and that, that's in the next chapter he says that. And in fact, he was. These images had flashed across his mind. Because when Sri Yukteswar was speaking to Yogananda, the words were the least of what he was conveying. You know, he, what he was really doing was he was transferring his consciousness. And that's what Yogananda was accepting. That's why one moment in the company of a saint, even if the saint never speaks to you, it can be your raft over the ocean of delusion because what will come into you is quite different. Does that make sense? And it's extremely important because in our culture now we're absolutely, totally enamored of information. And we've begun to think that information is knowledge and even worse, we tend to think that information is wisdom. And we, we also tend to think that the only way one can learn something is by through lots of information. And we're just really killing ourselves with information. We're not allowed anymore to understand something. We have to research it. And we're not allowed anymore to just know something. We have to have all these facts and figures. And it's just, it's not that information can't support wisdom, but they're not the same. You can have wisdom without any information. And you can have all the information in the world and have no understanding. Just, it, and so we have to break that again. Uh, in uh, Biasa's classes on the yugas, which is the ascending and the descending ages on the planet, um, there's a certain point of, of descending, you know, this being the highest age and then coming down into the dark ages, this being 500 AD, which was the lowest point. There's a certain point in which written language develops. And the peculiarity is that written language 
is, is, is developed at a certain point on the descending cycle. Now, from where we are coming back the other side, we think written language is really a sign of really having developed something. But the mythology that goes along with that is that at the point that written language started coming in, um, the wise people started saying, but what will become of our memories? Meaning, if we, you know, until then, written language was not necessary because it wasn't necessary to have a symbolic representation of understanding because understanding was inherent and could be transferred directly. And it was only because people were becoming more dense that they had to write it down. Otherwise, it, it, was, it was intuitive. And it just, it's just a, such a funny flip because from where we stand, we're just so enamored of our own um, enormous level of you know, sophistication that it doesn't occur to us what children we are. There's, well, I'll tell one more story in this. Uh, there was a, a, a scientist from the Midwest, Swami just told us this recently, this is a very current story, this is a true story. A scientist from the Midwest who had a tremendous interest in yoga and he, this was like maybe in the 450s or 60s, maybe in the 50s I think this took place. And he got all these scientific instruments and he was studying the brain and because he was from India himself, he went to India and he was going to study the brain patterns because to make this academic study, he was going to study the brain patterns of advanced yogis. And they went to this um, Swami Purushottamananda who lived for many years at Vasishta Guha, for those of you who've been to India and have been to that cave. He was the great saint who, whose disciples still um, hold that place. Um, but he was a very advanced soul. And, and so they hooked him up to all their machines. First of all, he said, Today's not a good day to do it. And the scientist said, well, today's the day that works for us. You know, this is the day we really need to do it. He said, this really isn't a good day. They said, well, we really have to do it today. So they hooked him up and none of their machines worked. <laughs> so then they came back the next day when he said they would do it. And they hooked him all up and they sat there. And, and, and there were no brain waves. There were just none at all. I mean, no, no, none of any kind. And then, and they just got kind of disconcerted. And then he said, and then he said, oh, you want brain waves. And then he just started creating brain waves, you know, just of any kind, random patterns, crazy brain waves, you know, just making their machines go nuts, you know, just completely. And then he smiled and he said, you people are children. He said, you're just children. You don't know anything about that. <laughs> so it's, it, 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 there's a lot more going on here than we know. We just have barely touched it. And it, it behooves us to be humble and have a sense of time and space and history in this whole situation. So that's a very long answer, but to a very good question. When did he learn it? He learned it because he got cosmic consciousness. But Sri Teshwar trained him in understanding the scripture. Sri Teshwar trained him to write the, the Gita commentary. But he trained him in the way he knew he needed to be trained, which was completely uninfluenced by any external input and entirely through intuition. Specifically. Okay, any other thoughts? All right. When Swami was writing the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita commentaries too, he, he talked about that. He just, he just felt Jesus' presence and felt Krishna's presence and then through there he prayed to them and then they, they told him what to write. And uh, in fact, interestingly, it was because he was working so much on the Bible commentary that he came back, uh, not last year but the year before, and that was when he sat in our community and he said, the more I work with the Bible commentary, the more persuaded I am that Master was Jesus. He said, because there's just something so similar 
in the vibration and in the teaching. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's a, a theory that's batted about, but he just, that's what he just said. He hasn't said it since then. We were all a little startled. To me, it's sort of like one of those pieces of information that someday will be accepted, but it's a little soon. <laughs> it's isn't really not t quite time. Master's left so many hints, even calling his own teaching the second coming of Christ, which is a pretty explicit hint. But people take that to mean, and he himself made it seem something else. But nonetheless, it's an interesting thought. Okay. So, we are going to talk about Yogananda meeting his master in this absolutely gorgeous story. So, we, we have this whole business now of Yogananda trying to fulfill his life duties, which we talk, we've talked about. And it is actually, all through the whole autobiography, there really is a theme of Yogananda trying to also just sort of live out and be responsible in the ways that uh, affect all the rest of us in his own way. I mean, even to be influenced enough by his father to promise that he would finish high school. But still, he didn't take any of it very seriously. He talks about, you know, meditation in the crematory grounds. And uh, when, you, when you ever visit India, for some reason this whole chapter, because we're just a couple of months away from a trip, I just am seeing this whole thing in terms of really big visual images. But uh, all my... Uh, early spiritual training uh, before I came to Ananda was through reading the writings a lot, I read a lot, but a lot of the books by Sri Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna was a very, um, uh, I mean he was an Indian avatar. There was no veneer of Western, uh, Western style over him. It was very Indian. And in the passion of his sadhana, he would often go and meditate at crematory grounds. In fact, one particular one and uh, it seems so odd to Westerners because, first of all, you know, the, the crematorium in the West is a factory, and, it, and it's way, God knows where, and it's way inside, and nobody ever gets anywhere close to it. And, uh, but in India, a, crema, uh, a crematory, crematory grounds is just a place. It's like a park. It, you just, it's just there. It's generally on a riverbank. In fact, it's almost always on a riverbank if there is a river because the ashes have to go into the water. And it's just an open area. And because they build big fires and they put bodies on them. And, and it's, it's a public sort of place. It's not private. And you just can kind of walk on there. And, and we've visited several, including this small one in, in uh, Kasipur on the river Ganges near where Ram, This is where Ramakrishna lived. This is actually where Ramakrishna died and was cremated. That's why we went there. It's a very small place, really maybe as big as the sanctuary, but maybe smaller. Just a little park area, and there's just all these concrete places. And when, when somebody dies, it's all family, it's all done by the people. It's not, in America, everything's so divided up. You know, you die and you make a phone call. And then somebody you've never met very obsequiously comes in and then carries your loved one away. And then a little while later, you may visit them here and there, and then they'll appear in their final form but you're not generally involved in that process. In India, everything is still very much of the people. So the person dies, they carry out all the rituals at home, they wrap the person in a certain way and they put them on a little carryable cot and you just see people walking down the street with grandmother there or what's left of her and they just walk, you know, chanting sometimes and they'll just walk into this 
crematory place and they'll have made arrangements and there'll be all this wood and you'll just set the body down and then everybody will stand around and they'll set her on fire. And then everybody just stands there and watches her burn, which is, you know, it's something to see. I've never really been that close. We've been on a, in a boat in the river and watched it happen. I've never stood here and watched it burn, but everybody else does. And they just stand there, mostly the men, and just watch it happen. So for a, a yogi, um, who's really trying to always think beyond, you know, this little form that we're living in. You can see it's it's a it's a form of tantra, and tantra, true tantra is not about enjoyment. True tantra is putting yourself in front of the very things that would cause you most to shrink away, and then having the courage to just feel the spirit and go right into them. To go the opposite way in which the the natural impulse would be. So. Uh, uh, tantra yogis, you know, crematory grounds are like their, their favorite place. And Shivites, you know, people who are just renunciates. So for Yogananda, I mean, he was, a, he was a high school boy. And it's not like the normal place that most high school boys are thinking. And he would go there at night, you know, and just sit there and either watch the fires burn or just, you know, be among that whole attitude. And you can see it would just do a lot to make you not cling. And they would also do a lot to just anchor you ever more deeply, to measure everything against eternity and against death. It's a wonderful spiritual exercise. Some of us really like crematory ground. For me, as a, when I first got to Kasipur especially, it was just so, with a memory I'm sure, but I was just so happy to be sitting there meditating at the crematory ground. I know it sounds morbid, but I was just delighted. I loved being there. Just some ancient feeling of having done this so many times before as wandering sadhus in that country. And it's also even though, but, but you see also in Yogananda's family, you can see the great conflict that was going on because they were a well-established family and everybody else in the family is just on their way to making their life. And you have this one aberrated child who's going off at night, you know, and meditating at the crematorium and then coming back in and everybody else is getting ready to go to school or whatever else they're doing. So he had to play that balance. But also you can see that even though he promised his father that he would go to school, he wasn't going to change his life for it. And it's also it's a very interesting sort of um, example of how you can please others and still not compromise yourself. And because he knew that the reason he was being irresponsible in one area was because he was being supremely responsible in the only area that mattered, he had just perfect faith that the other area would work out. And, and uh, it's, that's a perfect illustration of a, a motto that is actually fundamental to Ananda, which is where there is dharma, there is always victory. And, and it's, a, it's something that's really important to remember. Dharma means right action, and right action is that which leads to expanded consciousness. And wherever, wherever you are acting out of dharma, out of an understanding that this action will bring expanded consciousness, it will always work out. And the, the, the opposite of that is also true. If you ever sacrifice dharma in the name of anything else, it will always fall apart anyway. And it's, and it's, it's an extremely and profoundly important principle to just... Um, absorb to the absolute marrow of your bones. Because if you can really absorb that, it gives you powerful, powerful faith in right action and powerful faith in God, really. 
because you know that if I am acting in harmony with the divine as I understand it, then everything will work out. And, and, not, and you're not tempted to do the wrong thing either because if there's not Dharma, there will never be victory and you know that. And so Yogananda, of course, he, he makes light of it. I mean, the book is so well written and so humorous in so many ways. He just makes light of it, but he didn't have a doubt in the world. You know, his father wanted him to get his high school diploma. He was doing it for his father, but what he really wanted was God and that was that. And the rest was Divine Mother's problem. And, and a lot of times in our own lives, we, we think we have insoluble difficulties. But remember this story, you don't. Follow Dharma and, and it will work out. And a few experiences like that in your life, and you think, well, I guess it does. The chapter, of, the next chapter about Brindaban is really that, you know. Just like you never doubt for a second, but then we do. Fifteen minutes later, his little companion was in tears again. You know, it's, it works out miraculously, but maybe it won't the next time. How many of us say that? Well, I know it came out right the last time, but, you know, I know God has always taken care of me, but, you know, I know it's always there for me. But really, do you? Where there is Dharma, there is victory. Tremendous calm strength in that simple thought. And, and pay attention to your life and notice. Because almost always when you or adharmic when you step aside it, it, it blows up in your face hopefully very soon so that the lesson will be very clear <laughs> any comments or thoughts about it anyway so, Var, so Master of course did what he was supposed to do got his high school diploma and then as he puts he could openly make plans to leave home and no one could stop him because now he was a man but he still had to run through this little cycle who knows why he had to go to all the way to Varanasi and be part of this other ashram and they have such you know it's such nice stories about the whole thing about the, the Swami who was in charge and how impressive he was but still he didn't really understand you know about meditation and about the inner life I think Yogananda is also telling us that don't don't dream that everything in India is as uplifted as you think it is because here's this whole ashram that he goes to and yet the practice of meditation it's just an organization it's not meditation even when Yogananda complains to the Swami, who is quite clearly an elevated soul. He doesn't take he doesn't take Mukunda seriously. You know, he sort of mocks him to the others. He'll learn our ways, and what are the ways of the ashram to be more outwardly concerned than inwardly concerned. And so Yogananda is also sort of dissolving a myth of uh, just mere form does not make you a spiritual person. And of course, also he had to go to Varanasi because that's where he was destined to meet Yogananda. And it, it's uh, Sri Teshwar, yes, thank you. He was Yogananda, good point. <laughs> and because this story is so full of miracles, you know, the meeting with his master is not accidental or not without thought. Once again, for those of you who've been in Varanasi, which I sort of look around to the Indian folk and I remember, it's these very, very, when he talks about the narrow lanes and the bazaar, sort of almost impossible to describe because it's a, it's a big place and you, you quote enter the narrow lane it's like at one point the whole town was just this sort of very built up area and the, and the narrow lanes are about this wide and the houses are three or four stories and they're just serpentine lanes and they you know now um, there's scooters that go down them no cars but they're literally big cows walk by and people and 
there's this, this really tight little shopping area. It's, it's just sort of impossible to describe. You can kind of smell it and feel it if you've ever been there. And uh, it was in all of that that's re- that Yogananda was. It, w- it couldn't have been a more teeming worldly scene is really what he's describing. He's just describing sort of the essence of, of everybody's everyday life. And, and this is the magic of India that uh, Master describes in the very first sentences of the autobiography of a yogi. You know, this, these God-realized masters are the, are the fruit of the Indian culture and they are its sole remaining wealth. So even in the midst of all of this, he just glances down this lane and there's just Sri Yukteswar just standing there. You know, just... But when a master just stands there, he stands in, in past, present, future, infinity, this is the, the sort of paradox of it, of even within his own consciousness, the consciousness is so different, even within his own body. So he just stands there. But in the, in the ways of things, the Master walks by and sees him and then doesn't quite respond. I, Master just, they, they give you all these stories, I think, just to give it a rich human element. But, but then the power of, of Sri Yukteswar is so much stronger than anything, even though even though Yogananda had had the vision in the morning that his master was going to come, still he saw it and went by. It's just the the, the busyness of the mind and our inability to just notice immediately, or the uh, the necessity for it to be proved to us. And so Sri Yukteswar, you know, turn, I mean Yogananda turns around and rushes to the feet of his master instantaneously. You know, from ages, past, present, future, everything dissolves in this extraordinary meaning. For those of you who haven't heard Swami read this, when you hear Swami's voice read those lines of Sri Teshwar, my own, you have come. And Swami conveys in his voice this extraordinary combination of deep spirituality and human emotion at the same time. It just, it rings in your ears when you hear it. And it, it almost, in many ways, illustrates more than all my words what that unique combination is of divinity and humanity. Just the way he says those words, my own, you have come. And, and then they have this extraordinary meeting and instantly, Sri Yukteswar knows everything about Yogananda. It's just, it, it's the kind of story that sort of makes all of us long to go to India and walk those lanes and keep looking left and right, you know. And it has, in fact, caused a lot of people to go do that and oftentimes to get hooked up with quite unworthy people just because the, the drama of the story is so profound. But uh, then, of course, you know, after all of this, Sri Yukteswar just takes him in and my own you've come and this is this holy reunion after all time. Then he tells him to do something and Yogananda won't do it. You know, I'm not going to do it. He's a young boy and Sri Yukteswar says, you're going to do it? He says, no, I'm not. And then I love the way Master's honest enough to say he immediately penetrated to the heart of my dilemma. You think your family's going to laugh at you, don't you? Isn't it just so um, real? You know, it's just such a touchingly real story. And, and, but Yogananda does not give in. And, and it's, it's an important fact that he doesn't give in. And he goes to all the trouble to tell us the story. He doesn't give in. Even though he, he does eventually, you know, he has his own power, he has his own will, he has his own thoughts. And he's not really just going to not be himself. And what, what I find interesting is when he talks about walking away from Sri Yukteswar, having 
um, ended this glorious meeting on this disharmonious note, he, all he says is that he just contemplated how interesting it was, how the scales of Maya go. I mean, there was no sort of anguish. There was no sense of blame. There was nothing. There was just an interesting, detached observation of, isn't it interesting how the scales of Maya go? And, and it, it's also that, that also was a very important part of the lesson. Because sometimes if our own nature compels us to do something, it's not necessarily that we're wrong. Even though we may eventually repudiate it, we may yet learn something more and do something else, it's, it's not necessary to become so personally involved in it. We just observe that these are the scales of Maya, that there's this side and then there's that side. I remember when just asking Seva that question, I was having a real terrible time with some woman that I was working with, I recall. I just said, Seva, why did this happen? And her answer was so simple, I'll never forget, she just said Maya. You know, just Maya. Because it's always an up and down cycle. And, and even as something as purely perfect as the disciple and the master meeting with each other, still there's this, they're, in, they're incarnated in human form and there's this mind form that just sort of rolls itself out. It straightens itself out eventually. But also, I, again, I will re- come back to it because I was reflecting on it reading at this time. Just that master had the strength of himself. And of course, he, he realized the folly of his ways, but at the same time, he had that much will that even as deeply desirous as he was to do what Yogananda, Sri Yukesh were asking to, he just wasn't going to do it yet. And of course he finally does, and when he does, there's you know, nothing left of his stubbornness, but still there's his stubbornness in place there. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's so mysterious. Um, it's, they really are us. You know, they really are us. And, and what's far more important is we are really them. And that's the whole point. Um, I've been engaged, as most of you know, in helping to create this website, which is the whole story of everything that we know about all the ways in which SRF is not being loyal to Yogananda's teachings. And, uh, I'm so immersed in it, I've, I've really come to appreciate things I never knew. I just never saw all the implications. But SRF has withheld and sanitized um, everything that they have released to the extent that you just no longer get what this uh, incarnation was really like. You just get this picture of, you know, it's just all fixed by the time you see it. Never had any problems, nobody ever sued him, nobody ever said anything bad against him. Uh, you know, he, he never, he just was always clean and right there. But he wasn't. I mean, he was very dynamic. He had nothing but money problems. He had a number of lawsuits, some of which were judged against him. He was a subject of yellow journalism a great deal of time. He was arrested in Florida for being a black man talking to white people. He was, you know, thrown out of town. Um, he cooked, he loved to cook, he made up lots of recipes. I mean, he lived, he had a life, he was us. And it's just so impossible because if we don't know that, we don't know how to be ourselves. I know uh, Bharat dedicated his first book to Swami Kriyananda and he didn't use Kriyananda's name, but he said to my friend Kay, he said, who has taught me so much about how to live my life merely by living his own. I thought that was such a brilliant dedication. 
And in a very real sense, we need to study Yogananda's life to find out how to live ours. It's interesting to find out how he lived his, but the only reason it becomes beneficial, really, is so that we can learn how to live ours. And we shouldn't be at all intimidated. We should be just very uh, calmly accepting of the fact that this is us. Just like um, when Swami was with Master and because Kriyananda had a beard at that time, he was so young and he had such a, a position in SRF, Master wanted him to look a little older by growing a beard. I'm going to tell a story Dharmaraj told on himself. Dharmaraj is in this uh, peace treaty play and he's one of four soldiers and the other three men, Steve and others, are a good bit older than him. And Dharmaraj said he looked at the video of it and it looked to him like three men and a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so for the next performance he grew a beard and it made him just look a little bit more like a man. It did work. <laughs> so Swami was about as old as Dharmaraj and Master wanted him to look a little older. And so he had a beard. And in that time, there weren't many men with beards. And so a Masonic Lodge was doing a tableau for Christmas, and because Swami had a beard, and I'm sure for other reasons too, they thought he would be a very good Christ. So even though he had nothing to do with the Masonic Lodge, they invited him over to play the role of Christ. Because I'm sure he looked quite spiritual, because he is. Um, and afterwards, Master said, well, how was it? And Swami replied by saying, well, I, it was fun to play the part of Christ, but I'd much rather be like Christ. And Master was just, as matter of fact, as anything in the world, he said, oh, well, that will come. You know, of course you'll be like Christ. It's not just as natural a thought as anything. And Swami, when he tells the story, he said, that's just simply how Master looked at us. That of course we'd be Christ. What, what else would we become? You know, where else are we going? Why else are we here? And And so we have to take that into ourselves without presumption, you know, without the thought that we're already there when we haven't put out the willpower. But at the same time, our mere aspiration brings us close to that. We really mustn't shrink away from it. It's probably one of the most important things that we learn spiritually, just as Sharon was saying, you can really grip this and say, I can do that in my own little way. And what we do is, it's sort of like a, it's concentric circles. It's really moving inward, inward circles. But we do the same thing here. You know, we, we, we play exactly the same human game, and then we get a little deeper, and then we do the same thing here, and then we do it here, and then we do it here. And the masters are doing it in its perfect form, but it's just a concentric circle. At the furthest edges, it resembles it. It's family responsibility, it's being loyal to our own way, it's being stubborn when we shouldn't be. It's putting the right priorities. It's having faith in God. They, the masters, as I said in one of the early classes, they get thrown over the wall and then they turn and they bore back through it. And in the process, they show us how to use the tools. You know, we've kind of got all these tools kind of sitting around and we don't know what they are. We just don't quite know what to do with them of willpower and determination. And we'll use it for the wrong thing over here. And we'll, one of our friends, one of the men who's been our lawyer for all these years, he was sort of talking about his profession and the balance between cooperating with what the client wants and advising them appropriately as to what would really be the wisest course of action. And he said, well, he said, well you know, if they want me to chop down a tree with a salmon, he said, I'll pick it up and flail away for a while <laughs> until I can make it clear that this is not going to work. <laughs> So that was sort of what I was thinking, which is we don't know how to use the tools, so we flail away, try to chop a tree down with a dead salmon, you know? And then we look over at the masters and realizing that he's using a saw, that he's eating the salmon and using the saw, 
you know, <laughs> which is really what you, what you read here. He was respectful of his father up to a point. He did what he was supposed to do, but not at the cost of his spiritual life. He was totally passionate about his master. And then he even says things like, it seemed a little superfluous to tell him anything about myself at this point. You know, when he, in the face of greatness, he had the capacity to recognize it and to behave accordingly and to let go of all preconceptions and just enter into it. You know, it's just so many levels of, and you know, Yogananda was, there's also another sweet element here. You know, Sri Kesha was 55, Yogananda was what, 17, 16? You know, he was really a boy. Sri Teshwar was by then in, in the middle of his life. And so there was also that whole sense of, my son, you have come to me. And much later in the story, um, when Yogananda goes back in 1936, and, and after 25 years, the second and only time, that, you know, the second time only that Sri Teshwar spoke words of love and affection, he said, I've always longed to have a son to whom I could pass on the truth of what I am and you're that son to me. You know, 25 years later that's what he said. And because in fact they, they were born in that relationship to each other. So it's really just such a beautiful story when you really see it and think of it that way. Huh. Well, let me take a break then we'll go to Brindavan. Okay? Then let's just, does anybody have anything else to ask about this chapter before we break to go to Brindavan? Okay, let's take a break. Take 10 minutes. Um, I just wanted to share with you upcoming events that are perhaps of interest to you. This coming Sunday at our community, we're having our annual open house. Um, you can, this is, as David was saying last, or a couple of weeks ago, this is a great place to bring your friends and family if you want them to know what you're doing but you wouldn't dare bring them to church. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just like it's, it's the real spirit of Ananda but, but the content is just a happy outdoor place and it actually it works real well or co-workers or your dentist you know people that you've talked to so they have lots of these little cards it's com this coming Sunday and even if if you're well familiar with Ananda it's kind of a happy family day and we get to show off a little of what we're doing it's really a lot of fun so, so this uh, Sunday from 2 to 6 um, this Sunday yes this Sunday. We crammed everything into July because um, we have a lot going on in August. Um, <laughs> um, this on uh, Saturday, August 4th, I'm teaching a class called Secrets of Prosperity, which I've taught once before. It worked really well before. I'm, I don't know if we're pressing our luck to do it again, but we'll try it. So it's a, a, a 10 until 1 class. I know, I mean, I really, that's what I felt when I saw it. I said, oh my God, that was lucky when I pulled it off once. I don't know if I can do it again. Ten to one. Yeah, and the night before, Friday night, you can stay up till midnight singing Krishna chants. If you feel, if you feel torn between these two things, it's a no-brainer. Come to the Krishna class, come to the Krishna kirtan. <laughs> okay, so it's a six, seven-thirty to midnight kirtan to Krishna. And, pardon me? Lord's going to come? Oh, that'll be fun. Our great Krishna scholar will come and read stories. And then Spiritual Renewal at Ananda Village starts on the 5th of August, Sunday to Sunday. And it's a, a wonderful, incredibly fun event at Ananda Village for a whole week when lots of different people give classes and lots of really fun things happen. Palo Alto is going to do the Thursday night um, 
our third the entertainment inspirational evening we're going to recreate um, a program that we did here a few times called in celebration of divine mother some of you may remember that we're going to sort of put it into a new incarnation and take it up there for thursday night so if you were thinking of coming up thursday morning you ought to it's going to be worth remembering so you drive all the way up there and see the same people you see here but it's still going to be fun okay <laughs> yes here September 15th or maybe the 15th or 16th mm. that's right. right that's why that's why we're, we're performing on Thursday because they're doing the dual Lotus on Friday okay I forgot about that that's true pardon me no we're talking about the 5th to the 12th of August okay so any, any other questions or comments on anything we've talked about so far before we go to Brindaban? Yes. I love these long steps. These are really fun. Okay. <laughs> I haven't really taken advantage of them yet. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, the part of the story where he would have... Uh-huh. It made me think of, it was where he talked about how form is not as important as, you know, the essence of the spiritual teaching. Mm-hmm. But, but what it made me think of is also, in terms of the past, even the time that he was writing, he seems he was also wanting to impart that never would the organization be as important. Oh, yeah. You know, um, Sri Akeshwar says, God is the, when, when, Yoga, when Sri Yukteswar says to Yogananda that he has to go out and do a work of his own, Yogananda basically says, why? And uh, Sri Yukteswar answers, he says, well, um, God is the honey, organizations are the hive, both are necessary. And then he adds, of course, the form without the spirit is useless. <laughs> and uh, yes, Yogananda was um, intensely aware that form without spirit was useless and that's where that's the um, just the sheer lunacy of what's going on at the present time but that's the message that Swamiji picked up from him that Diamata did not pick up from him which is the form without the honey without the spirit is useless but what's really happening is um, whatever I said I seem to be just totally mixing all my words up tonight I've been writing so much that I've been so exact that I just, if I can't see it, it just kind of tumbles out of my head right now. Um, uh, uh, let me, where was I? Oh, yes. But the real story of all of this is chapter 30 of Swami's book, A Place Called Ananda, Karmic Patterns, that, that the very reason that there had to be a second coming of Christ is because of what happened the first time, Right? And uh, in the process of uh, pulling chapter 30 to put it up on our website. Oh, did I tell you about our website? Anyway, about our website. <laughs> to put it up on our website um, was uh, Karen, because it was very long, Karen had to make headings, you know, so that, that when you see this huge document down the left side, you'll see all these things and be inspired to read it. And she, Swami didn't do this, but she like came up with, I think it was seven, seven karmic trends you know one is the it just starts with the betrayal of the master the in, the coming in of the institution um, the institutionalism the suppression of non-monastic communities 
you know it just it, just a whole bunch of in, very interesting things um, that that were the, that are the five or seven whatever it was karmic trends that is what happened to Christianity but it didn't happen it, they're not karmic trends because it happened to Christianity it happened to Christianity because they're karmic trends and they are exactly the karmic trends that are that that uh, Yogananda's mission is caught in right now and this whole struggle between SRF and Ananda it has nothing to do with SRF and Ananda I'm trying to change the name of the project everybody's laughing at me to a chapter 30 <laughs> because chapter 30 is exactly what we're doing it, but chapter 30 is chapter 30 of Kriyananda's book A Place Called Ananda and it's called Karmic Trends and it's really that, that chapter we were in the CC when he wrote it we were, that was when we were cooking for him and that was the period of time when he would get up at 3 in the morning and go to bed at 11 still in his pajamas you know because he just he was just um, uh, absorbed he was totally you know in this he, you know just hours would pass he just didn't know anything he, he, we'd put the food on the table and leave and you know come back put the more food on the table and leave you know he was just totally like this and that whole that whole chapter was almost like the culmination of these 50 years of uh, it was the end of the book and, and the whole book even though even though Swami writes with the way Swami writes now he doesn't know from paragraph to paragraph where he's going what to speak of chapter to chapter and he wrote the first and second part of that book over two years two year gap but the first paragraph led to chapter 30 and chapter 30 was the karmic um, trends that turned Christianity into churchianity and, and they're exactly the same forces that are now influencing SRF and the Nanda is the alternative it's just, it's just playing itself out you know as if it was scripted and, he, and what he said that's so interesting is that Yogananda himself knew that he didn't necessarily have the power to change it because he was subject to the karma of the situation and so this whole effort that a lot of us are engaged in to sort of draw Yogananda's work back to rescue it from these karmic trends in my mind is a chapter 30 because that, that shows that it's not personal it's not between SRF and Ananda and it's not between Daya and Kriyananda it's a chapter 30 there are these enormous karmic trends happening and we have to act accordingly and I mean that the concept it works in many areas of our lives too because there are these sort of karmic whirlpools that we get caught in that you know we get habits of self-concern or habits of what about me or habits of lack of faith in God or habits of being too intellectual and not heart-oriented enough and they become karmic patterns we can't escape from you know they just they're, they're archetypal forms that just act themselves out you know, they're all chapter 30 this particular karmic pattern has to do with uh, great cosmic forces in the power of light trying to come through how did I come to ask you that am I answering somebody's question or did I just make that up did somebody just say the word W and I went to website okay <laughs> any, any other comments or thoughts yeah yeah, exactly. Although, you know, Master is very kind to, uh, to him in there. It's interesting, even though, was his name Dayanananda? Dayananda. 
his Swami uh, Master is very um, complimentary to him, and he, and he, you know, he comes out looking very good, even despite the fact that he was running an ashram in which he didn't support what Yogananda was doing. Still, he comes out looking very good. But Swamiji comments and has made the comment about how gracious Master is all through the autobiography, that he makes everybody look good, and and it's true. It, I mean, just of the thousand lessons that are in the book. If you really look at this, you, would, you could think that Yogananda could have been quite annoyed with that Swami, that ashram. But instead you read through it and you feel like, oh, this is a, this is a good man. But that's, the, that's in the hands of the author that that comes out, because another more unkind person could have written that whole story very differently. You know, things like that you don't even notice, because it just seems so natural. Yeah. All right. So anyway, so now he's given up on the ashram and he's ended up in Vrindavan and you, just, you have this just wonderful just story. This, it's just a little story in here of, of Ananta really challenging them, you know, to put his faith on the line. And, and it's so powerful in there when Ananta says, you know, we'll, we'll prove that it's true. Unhesitatingly, Yogananda jumps in. And again, it's just sort of like, it's, it's, a, it's a classic kind of experience that you just sort of have to think to yourself, why is this story here? This story is here so that every time I think that I'm not going to be taken care of, I will remember these two penniless boys in Brindavan who not only were taken care of, but were you treated like royalty in such an extraordinary way. And you have the extra added thing, you know, that, that Yogananda had, had so much confidence that God would take care of him, that there was no eagerness as God did. That in the beginning of the story when these two men want to sort of get their attention, can we take care of you? And little Jatendra is just desperate to say yes. Um, um, Master doesn't even want to deal with them. He's not going to, he's not going to demean himself by acting eager. And there's, there's a kind of nobility to that. It's, it's like I'm, I'm not going to lose my center no matter what and I'm going to make sure that Divine Mother knows that I'm just completely confident. I don't have to snap the first thing. It's a sort of an extra touch in there. You sort of wonder why. You would think he would have just turned right to them, but it, it was probably also a lesson to Jitendra in the story who was just so anxious. He may have restrained in order to force his friend to a greater sort of sense of confidence. So they go off and and you know it's just and Master's so vivid and that's another thing he's just so real I mean this is just about food and also in the other in the other chapter when he was talking about how hungry he was and it lives in memory as one of life's perfect hours you know when he had this dinner and it, it's just part of his exuberance there's just no there's no mistaking that this is a man who really is having a joyful experience he's not just sort of being little about it and so they go to this ashram, and again, he just talks about this ambrosial thing. And, you know, Yogananda was a portly fellow, but God knows he was not involved in food in any way. Even when he went to India, he came back 50 pounds heavier. And he talks about how, alas, in America, you know, in India, portly swami is considered to be an attractive sight. But in America, they feel differently about these things. <laughs> but uh, still, there's just this... Such a charming naturalness about it, in, in the way he just lets God take care of him. And, uh, and then, of course, they go, you know, step by step, and you have Jatindra, who's all of us. We have one little thing happen, and then the very next time we doubt again. And it, it's so, it's, when, when, you, when you're standing there, when you're reading the story, and you're thinking of Yogananda and Vrindavan, 
it's real easy to side with Yogananda. Of course, this is going to work out. But really, much more of the time we side with Chitindra, even when the divine is right in front of us, taking care of us, there's just this lack of faith somehow. And, and so he tells this whole story because our lack of faith in God is one of the most tormenting things that ever happens to us. Because if we don't have a sense of God's presence, we're utterly vulnerable. Really. I mean, what will protect you without God's presence? There's absolutely nothing that can protect you. There's, there is no safety in this world. I mean, this world ends in death anyway. So, I mean, there's literally no safety at any moment. I mean, any of us could drive out of this building and never get home, except to our, our, our astral home, you know. We can never get back to our little buildings that we're pleased to call our home. We have no idea. Not one of us has any idea whether this is the last moment of our lives or... You know, whether we'll be here another 80 years. 80, I doubt, but, you know. 18, 20, 25, 40, depending on who we are. Um, but just that the more we can cultivate an awareness of that sense that we don't really make any of this happen. Isn't that what Sri Keshwar also said or Dayananda said? It was Dayananda who said to Master, you know, if you, what will happen if nobody feeds me? Yogananda said, what if I starve to death? will die then. You know, and then there's that incredibly passionate, I'm going back, but that incredibly passionate speech by Dayananda saying, do you think for one moment that you really live by your own hands or by what other people do for you? And it's just so, it's such a powerful thought because we spend so much of our time attaching cause to the things that go on around us. You know, you did this, you did that, and, and on, on one hand it, we, we don't have put faith where it properly is, and on the other hand, we're constantly putting blame where it doesn't belong. We actually really imagine that so-and-so hurt my feelings, and that so-and-so should have done it differently, and because this is happening, I have a right to be upset. I was talking to someone not too long ago who was giving me a long explanation about, you know, why they were justified in this particular situation in feeling the way they felt. And it, it falls in the category of what's known as true, but entirely irrelevant. You know, and, and it's, 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 a very, it's a very good category to develop in your mind that, yes, it's absolutely logical. And yes, you've done a brilliant job of explaining all the relationships one with another. And now that you've done that, do your very best to forget it completely at this moment. Because it's not relevant to your actual happiness. It's just relevant to your exercise and how clever you can be. You know, your actual happiness is when you recognize that everything comes from God. And if these people have played their parts perfectly and have just been perfectly terrible, you know, in all the ways that we're so good at explaining, it really doesn't make them any more responsible. They just, they don't do it. We ourselves, within ourselves, are 100% responsible for our experience. And the more we recognize that it comes from God, quite simply, the freer and the happier we are. It's just such a simple equation. One of my friends, Hari Das, whom everyone knows, many know, He's just moved to Sacramento and to be part of the colony there with his family. And uh, he was saying to me, I said, well, how's it going? And he said, well, I have this thing, he said, where I say, I'll think about it in a year. <laughs> he said, so I'm going to give it a year. And he just, he, Paridas plays all these mental games with himself because he knows in a year he'll feel completely different than he feels now. So it's, instead of thinking about what I like and I don't like now, every time I want to, I'll just say, well, I'll think about it in a year. So, you know, a year's not very long, I'll just do this for a year. And then it completely short circuits the whole game of, do I like this, do I not like it, what's going to happen, you know. 
because he knows himself know, to, well enough to know that he'll go down that road. But now he just cut it off by saying, I'll think of it in a year. And he's tricked himself because in a year he'll forget to think about it because it'll be gone at that point. So Yogananda's adventure to Brindaban is just this incredible story of cast your faith, cast your faith upon the waters of God. And now, of course, he had the power because um, there's a story that, that's in the essence of self-realization of Master and somebody had read, if you have enough faith, you can move mountains. And so there was this man who had, there was this mountain on his back window that blocked his view a little bit. So he was going to have, you know, pray that the mountain would move. And the next morning he got up and it was still there. And he said, I knew you'd still be there. Just like that. <laughs> Meaning he never had any faith in it at all. And so even what, what draws us, draws the power, is the power that we put out. And this, this absolute certainty that the divine belongs to us. Uh, for those of you who are here on Sunday, anywhere at Sunday service, the... Sunday service reading was that wonderful story from the Bible where the woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years touches the hem of Jesus' garment and she's instantly healed and then he turns and says who touched me and the crowd has been pressing around him and everybody's been touching him he said no somebody touched me and then he says I felt power go out of me but it, it was such an interesting phrase. I felt power go out of me. It wasn't that Christ turned and said, oh, you look like a good one, I'll heal you, or anything like that. He had his back to her. She touched his garment. And the, the magnetism was such that, that the divine was drawn right through him. And he felt it. He felt, that he felt himself be an instrument for the divine. And I was talking about this in Boulder Creek, and the thought that was so interesting was, you have to... You have to you yourself have to know that that's your reality. That's what creates it. Because if you touch the hem of the garment with the thought that I'm touching something that's not mine, you won't, you won't, you'll, you'll, you'll put that block between it. And so you'll hold onto the garment and you'll want Christ to help you, right? And, and Christ may help you, but it, it the power won't automatically go through. When she held onto the hem of Jesus' garment, she knew that she, she became united with him. Because she had so much faith, as I was saying on Sunday, she, it wasn't that she had faith in Christ only, she had faith in herself as part of him, you see. And as soon as she had faith, herself, faith in herself as part of him, connected with him, they became one and the power flowed right into her. Where so many people would touch the garment with this thought of, oh, isn't he wonderful, I wish he would help me. And she must have come into it with a completely different awareness of just moving toward that which is hers. You know, just like a, when my first friend, the first person I knew well had a baby when I was about 19 years old and I had the experience of being with a woman and her baby, you know, who was my contemporary, which I, I'd, I'd only ever experienced it from the other end, you know, being the baby. And uh, her baby at that time was at the toddler stage, which I've begun since to understand is something real. And so therefore, while we were trying to talk, she was continuously getting up from the couch and moving around because the child was just everywhere. He was a very, very active boy. And it just, after a little while, I said, how can you do this? You know, how can you just be following this child around all the time? And then, and she gave me a beautiful answer I've never forgotten. She says, you look at us and you think that I'm separate from him, but I don't feel separate from him. So it, for me to move to where he is, there, there's no movement to me. I'm just 
following myself. It's just where I am. Isn't that a wonderful way to put it? But that's how we need to feel about our relationship with God, that it, it, we look at it, this isn't separate. And that's how Yogananda felt. Of course my mother will take care of me. Like, what a question. How could you even think for a second that my mother wouldn't take care of me? Of course mothers take care of their children. That's what mothers do. And so there, he didn't have to try to have faith because he was so steeped in the awareness that the divine was his own and that his, his, that would, that his own would take care of him. Of course, he was also totally detached. He definitely wanted to show Ananta, but you know he didn't have an ego involvement in that, but he didn't even have that thought. He just knew it would work out. Ananta challenged me, I'm going to go. Of course, what difference does it make? Because my mother will take care of me. That's why when the first person came to offer him food, he didn't panic and rush toward it. Because, of course, mother's going to feed me. So. And you see how powerful that is? And, and, but at the same time, there's this very fine line between true faith and presumption. Because sometimes we don't really have the power within us, or it's very, it gets very subtle. But sometimes what we're trying to do is we're trying to substitute faith for actual dynamic will. You know, and what we're really looking is for a passive situation, and so we'll call it faith, because it gives us an excuse to be passive. And so what Yogananda had the capacity to do, the reason he could feel unified with the infinite, is because he was raising his energy to that level. He wasn't sitting there and expecting God to come down to where he is. Right? So we have to, that's why Yogananda's prayer was, I will reason, I will will, I will act but guide thou my reason, will, and activity in everything that I do. Because, you, again, you never saw in Yogananda any kind of passivity at all. You know, just as I was saying, even just the enthusiasm with which he describes the food, you know, he's not, he's not uh, passive, he's totally engaged. But that engagement is um, with the awareness that he's moving within the field of divinity. It's not the, not the ego's anxious movement. Oh, I better take care of this, I better take care of that, I better take care of this. It's just a sense of being a wave on the ocean, you know. And of course, the, the, a wave has to do its little part there, but it's always moving as part of the ocean. It never gets the foolish idea. I mean, I've used this image before, but it's not, I mean, it's not just mine. I've repeated this image before. You know, a wave looks, would look really stupid to everyone if it thought that it was the actual cause of what was happening. Now that would be like a really, really retarded wave. I mean, it acts as kind of a pathetically kind of stupid wave to just be out there acting like it was causing the whole thing. But uh, maybe I won't draw too fine a point on it, right? But nonetheless, the wave just can't kind of piffle out. It has to sort of finish its story. It has to go up, it has to curl, it has to hit the beach, it has to withdraw. It can't just halfway through lose interest. It has to really do the whole thing. But, but you just know what's moving you. Your physical body, your emotional self, everything, you have to know what's moving you. So there they went, and they had a great time. Any other any questions or thoughts or comments? Also, the other part of this I have, I noticed a little note here that I remember. When he got on the train to Vrindavan, all he was thinking about was Krishna. You know, he lost, he, Yogananda lost track of the test or anything. He, it, it was the same, it was the same way he got his high school diploma. You know, he wasn't going in order to eat. 
he was going to Vrindavan where Lord Krishna had walked and wouldn't this be a glorious experience. So part of the reason that the Lord took care of him is because he had to. God had to take care of him because Yogananda had called so strongly on the Lord that they had to function together and, and uh, Yogananda was doing what he was supposed to do, which is I'm a devotee going to see Lord Krishna and then everything else is God's problem. And, and that's what I was sort of trying to say about the passivity. You can't do nothing. The only, the only thing that justifies your being irresponsible in the worldly sense is if you've become super responsible in the spiritual sense. You can't just be irresponsible in the worldly sense and use spirit as an excuse. You have to really be so responsible on the spiritual level that you're justified, otherwise you really better take care of yourself. And that's more than just uh, affirmation. That's really that this is my priority. I know I had a very wonderful experience that way very early on in my spiritual life when I was living at Ananda village and I was living in a trailer and I'd lived in trailers for a long time. Really sort of ugly, dumpy trailers. And I never really cared. I thought they were wonderful. And then one day, I sort of woke up and I thought, this is not a good place for me anymore. I thought, this is a really ugly, dumpy, small trailer. This just doesn't, it's not working for me. And uh, I had this sort of picture in my mind of what I needed. I needed space. I needed more, more, more light, bright light. I needed more color. I needed shiny white. Just sort of like I could see this picture in my mind of what I needed. But the reason I was living in a trailer is because I was helping to build Ananda and I earned almost nothing and I had no way to get any more money and I was, I'm perfectly capable of earning money but in order to have, have taken care of myself in that context I would have had to turn away from something that was much more important and I just looked at it and I thought too bad, I'm not going to do it I can't, I couldn't even dream of it, it wasn't even a question I had a an, uh, an inner urge that felt valid but to fulfill it would have caused me to have to turn my back in ways that I wouldn't so I just more or less I just said to Divine Mother you know I think this is a righteous need but I can't see any righteous way to achieve it so it's your problem about a year later I woke up in the house that David and I were living in I saw the white walls of the dome I saw the sun coming in and making the crystal rainbows I looked out across the blue carpet and I just thought, oh my God, this is it. You know, it was just like, there was something, it was just, it was meant to be. And, but it wouldn't have come about I'm, for certainty if I had reached for it. You know, it was, it was such a, a no-brainer for me that it wasn't even a test. It was just an interesting experience where there is dharma, there is victory. So Yogananda gets on the train and I'm going to Brindaban. This is the time to think of Lord Krishna. Period. Everything else is in God's hands. So the meaning of the story is not lost on us. All right, I think that's the end of it for tonight. Unless there's a question of any kind. Pardon me? You should have painted the trailer. I couldn't afford paint, you know. No, and I would have been, for me, to paint the trailer would have been like trying no. to cut down the tree with the salmon. <laughs> You're a builder. All right, thank you. Good night. <laughs>